I want to start off the sermon uh, with a quote that struck me that I was reading this week. The man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot, shoots his children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. I read this uh, in a book by Kevin DeYoung entitled The Hole in Our Holiness. It's a book I've recently really appreciated. Um, and I might recommend it to you. It might be a good parallel read to 1 John. It's a pretty easy read. It's a pretty short book. You could read it along with the sermon series in 1 John. Let me read it again. The man who attempts Christianity without the church shoots himself in the foot, shoots his children in the leg, and shoots his grandchildren in the heart. Is there a potential this morning that you're limping around on one leg? That your children are limping, that your grandchildren are suffering. Kevin DeYoung's point is extremely clear in this quote. The most faithful and most fruitful Christians are those that pursue Christ while in close fellowship with other believers in the church. And though this runs afoul of our predominant thinking in our culture, a culture where expressive individualism is God, and the ultimate authority on all subjects is me, myself, and I, I believe Pastor DeYoung is right when he says this. But more importantly than what I believe is I believe that the New Testament, the breadth of what the New Testament teaches on the subject of fellowship supports exactly what he's talking about right here. Further, that point is made particularly apparent in the Apostle John's first epistle entitled 1 John in your Bibles. So I'd encourage you to find 1 John right now in your Bibles as we'll be continuing our church series, but we'll be focusing on the book of 1 John in our time together this morning. And I feel that 1 John, and, and for what it's worth, 1 John is right near the end of your Bible. We have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. That's the end of the Bible, the last few books in the Bible. And I think 1 John is the appropriate next step in our series because it talks about fellowship. It talks about some of the foundational aspects of the church that we brought up over the last four weeks, but we are coming back to again in 1 John. Now, it's worth noting that in the letter, John unequivocally holds up the truth of salvation by individual personal faith in Jesus Christ. That is not to be questioned. And yet, he also spends extensive time encouraging those who profess faith in Christ to evaluate their professions. He calls us again and again in this book to evaluate our professions by three different categories and look for these themes as we walk through the book of 1 John. These are going to come up again and again. He encourages us to evaluate our professions first by our faith, by what we might call the theological test, by what we are claiming we believe. He says, you must believe in the truth to be saved. He says to evaluate by their faith. He also says to evaluate your profession of faith by your holiness, by the way you are interacting with sin. We might call this the sin or morality test. He says, look at your life, look at how you handle sin, and what does that say about your profession of faith? So the morality test, the theology test, and lastly, he tells them to evaluate their profession of faith by their affections, by what they love. You're going to notice again and again this idea come up throughout the book and be looking for these themes. In essence, what he's saying is evaluate all of these things in the context of other believers. None of these things, whether it be the theology test or the morality test or the love test, can be accomplished as a lone individual Christian out on your own. And so he encourages us to take a look at fellowship. 
And I pray that as we study this together corporately, that this book of 1 John, this short but powerful book, will do as much to challenge and encourage your heart as it has for my own over the last few weeks and months. I pray this will be a beneficial time as we study the book of 1 John together. And with that in mind, let's jump into it. I want us to take a look at the first four verses of chapter 1 in 1 John as we take our first look at this small but impactful book. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. What a dense introduction to a book, is it not? Would you pray with me? And then we'll dive into interpreting those verses. Father, we are so thankful this morning, thankful for the truth of what we've sung, thankful for your goodness and your greatness, thankful that you are an awesome God, and we only know a sliver of the reality of who you are, and yet, Lord, you have chosen to disclose yourself to us in the person and work of Christ, in the Bible that we get to read from. So I pray as we fix our eyes on Christ and as we focus on what your word teaches about him this morning that you would give us a sense of worship and awe. Lord, that you would encourage us. Lord, that you would guide our discussion and this time of preaching. Help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see. Help us to grow in our wisdom and our love for you. And help us to glorify you for all that you've done. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're now entering what we might call chapter two or the second section of our Church Basics sermon series. Having established the fundamentals of the church in what I called Ecclesiology 101, or the theology of the church, we now move on, and we move into our introduction on fellowship. So you'll notice in the top left corner, I now have Fellowship 101 to help us know we're moving into course number two of our study. Now, full warning, you may have gotten this sense from my introduction, but uh, our study in 1 John may not be the most pleasant read, or may not be the most pleasant study of any books that we could have picked in the New Testament. It's a challenging book, not only to our culture, but also because of the situation that John is writing into. John is writing into what is a very difficult situation. So I want to establish some groundwork to help you understand what we're talking about. It may not come as a surprise to you that the author of the book of 1 John is John. Now, maybe that is a surprise to you, but it's not. It shouldn't be much of a surprise. The author is the Apostle John, who was with Jesus, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was the author of the book of John, the Gospel of John. Then these three short letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, before penning, before his death, the book of Revelation. Now, it's worth noting that he is probably writing later in his life, probably around 80 A.D., so John is an older man at this point. He's probably writing after the destruction of Jerusalem, so likely he has fled from Jerusalem and has settled down in Ephesus. And there's a good chance that he's writing 1 John from the city of Ephesus, and he's writing to a non-specified audience. This is the reason the book bears the name of John rather than 
Ephesians or, or Colossians, or it's not written to a particular church. Instead, it's likely written to the churches in Asia Minor, similar to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, to that area, and it was meant to be a circulated letter or a general epistle. Now, the purpose of John, I've already hinted at, and we'll explore this further in just a moment. But for the time being, we'll say that John is writing to address false teaching and salvation insecurity in the church. He's writing to address some specific false teaching that had risen up in the church and to reassure the people he's writing to of what salvation looks like. We'll we'll come back to that in just a minute. But from the start, John begins his letter in these first four verses that we've read by laying out some basic realities and truths about eternal life. And so we're going to follow this theme as we go through these first four verses and try to introduce the book as a whole. John starts his argument in the beginning of time with talking about Christ as the source of eternal life, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to note three interesting things about Christ that John makes very clear in these first four verses because they are foundational for everything he's going to say as the book goes on. First, he speaks of Christ's divine origin. Christ's divine origin. Now you'll note there's some interesting titles that he gives Jesus here. And we'll see how he weaves that together here in just a moment. Notice he begins speaking from the beginning. We'll come back to this just in a moment. But he says he's writing, look at the end of verse 1, concerning the word of life. So he's writing concerning the word of life. He doubles down on that idea in verse 2 by saying, and I proclaim to you the eternal life. Now, It doesn't take a rocket scientist, though it's fascinating to note as you read a lot of commentaries that people will do all sorts of theological gymnastics to make sure that this isn't talking about Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, I could probably ask any of you second, third, or fourth graders out here and say, what is Jesus talking, or what is John talking about? And your answer would be Jesus. It's fairly clear when he uses these titles of the word of life and the eternal life, he's referring to Jesus. And I can't help but think that John had in his mind an experience from his gospel. Flip to the left. Keep your finger in 1 John and flip to the left in in your Bible to John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the fourth book in the New Testament and the gospel that John himself penned. And I can't help but think we're going to be reading a tremendous amount from the gospel of John as we're working through 1 John because it's so relevant. But in John chapter 6, there's a fascinating interaction that I think John probably had on his mind as he penned the introduction to this letter. In John's gospel... Chapter 6, verses 66 through 69, Jesus has just delivered some very difficult teaching to the crowds. There were people following him everywhere because they wanted a free meal. Jesus talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. The people get confused and they want to walk away. Look at verse 66 of John 6. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Notice what Peter picks up on here. Lord, where else are we going to go? You are the only one where there is life. You are the only one who has the words of eternal life. And I can't help but think that John is remembering that occurrence as he pens concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life. 
John picks up on these titles of Jesus Christ, and he specifies how this is who Jesus was. And then he also has some describing, some um, interesting articulations of who Jesus was as well. Look at these descriptions. Verse 1, at the beginning it says, that which was from the beginning. He instantly starts off by speaking of Christ's eternality, by speaking of Christ, how he has existed from the beginning. And we don't just mean the beginning of the world. He means the beginning before the beginning, the everlasting into eternity. He says that which was from the beginning. And also he notes Christ's divinity. Look at verse 2, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. He notes Christ's eternality and Christ's divinity with the Father. He's highlighting how Christ was there with God at the creation of the universe. He's picking up on a couple of things. First of all, he's picking up on Genesis 1, 1 through 5. All right, one more time. This will be the last time. Turn to the left in your Bibles. This one's easy to find. It's the first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of your Bible, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and see if this doesn't ring a bell as we study 1 John. In Genesis, Moses writes of the creation of the world. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God speaks into nothingness, and out of nothingness comes everything. And by his word, light appears. Now, do you see how he picks up on those themes at the beginning of his gospel? Now turn to the right to John chapter 1, the text that I had Troy read earlier. John chapter 1, he picks up on these themes and he causes us to remember Genesis 1 when he speaks of Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without not him, not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see how he's intentionally hearkening our minds back to Genesis and saying, Christ was there at creation. And then he picks up on those themes in 1 John and he says, Christ was eternal. Christ was divine. He's putting these whole connections together to help us see unequivocally, undeniably, Jesus Christ is fully God. I find it fascinating that anyone that reads the Bible can come to the conclusion that Jesus never claimed to be God. Throughout the pages of the Bible, Christ is clearly portrayed as fully God, fully divine, undeniably God. John here undeniably claims that Christ is fully God. But John also takes pains in this introduction to make Christ's humanity clear as well. He clearly argues secondarily for Christ's real incarnation. So in our minds, we know Christ is eternal, he's fully divine, he's equal with the Father. And then we also read these proofs of his manifestation. In verse 2 he says, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it. Well, what exactly is he testifying to? John is saying, let me tell you about my experience, let me tell you about what's going on. He says, we have heard, we have seen, and we have touched with our hands. He repeats it multiple times in these verses. 
that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked on and touched with our hands, this life was made manifest. We have seen it and testified to it. Then down in verse 3, that which we have seen and heard. You get the point? He's trying to make it very clear that this Jesus character was not some sort of a myth. John, the apostle John, was like, I personally walked with him. I personally talked to him. I personally saw him and touched him. He was real. So he was fully divine, but he was also fully human. It's almost like John is applying the scientific method here. Kids, you know the scientific method. I mean, all the rest of us that fail at are you smarter than a third grader or whatever have no idea what I'm talking about. But all the kids in the audience know exactly what I'm talking about, right? The scientific method, right? Observation, research, hypothesis, testing, analysis, conclusion. And if at any point it doesn't make sense, you start back over again, right? And you continue to observe until you've figured out what's going on. Does that not sound familiar to what John is doing here? He's saying, I've seen him, I've touched him, I've walked with him, I heard him speak. Jesus was human. Jesus was fully human. And it's ironic because he says, we, we have heard. One of the strongest apologetics, in my opinion, for the authenticity of the New Testament Gospels is the fact that these 11 men consistently for 20, 30, 40, 50 years under incredible persecution continued to maintain that Christ was God and that he was raised from the dead. What an incredible, if you can get 11 people to agree on any like, testimony of anything, you're doing pretty impressive. I know I'm going over some people's heads, but for those of you that recall the Watergate scandal, they couldn't keep their story straight for like a week. And yet, here in this testimony about Jesus, you have 11 disciples that for years under incredible persecution, with no human monetary advantage to keeping their story straight, managed to keep their story straight. And they claim unequivocally that Christ is real, historical, and incarnate. That he really came to earth, that he was in human form. John unequivocally, definitively claims that Christ is truly man. He was divine, he was there before the beginning of the world, and yet he was truly man. I love the way R.G. Lee puts this. He says this, try and track, it's a little confusing. He says, Jesus was the only man who had a heavenly father, but no heavenly mother. Who had an earthly mother, but no heavenly father. Who was older than his mother, and who was as old as his father. Everybody pick up on that, I know there's some... Confusing logic there. Heavenly father, earthly mother, right? No heavenly mother, earthly father, older than his mother, but the same age as his father. He's saying Christ was fully God, fully man. The only one that that has ever happened to. And because of these two incredible realities, then the gospel becomes a necessary proclamation. A necessary proclamation. He notes it a few times here. He says, and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. There is this undeniable urge to proclaim precisely what he has heard, what he has seen, what he has felt, what he has touched. 
to everyone he possibly can. If Jesus wasn't fully God and fully man, John is a lunatic. Because he has this compelling urge to preach on every street corner that Jesus is the Messiah. The world will at times see us as lunatics. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ. And you think those simple Christians, that's kind of a silly thing to believe. Well, if it's silly, then we believe it. But I would argue it's not actually silly. What if it's true? What if the divine God of the universe actually came to earth to die for your sins? To rescue you because you could not redeem yourself? It's unbelievable that 11 disciples for the rest of their entire lives, and all but John, it would appear, died for believing this, proclaim it consistently. Can't help themselves, they're so convinced. It's intriguing how the Nicene Creed puts this. It says, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of gods, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. It's one of the most unbelievable realities that the New Testament teaches. Christ is fully God, fully man, this undeniable proclamation that we must make. And it's worth noting that the reason John goes to lengths to describe this is he's combating what is likely two Gnostic heresies. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Gnostics, the Gnostics were a line of Greek thinking and heretical movement that was taking place in John's time. And they had bought into a Greek line of thinking that said, everything spiritual is good, everything physical is bad. And if everything spiritual is good and everything physical is bad, we must get rid of the physical and focus on the spiritual. And then you can see where that caused a problem for the incarnation. Because if Christ was fully God, then how could he become what is bad physical? Right? And so it creates this controversy. And so they resolved it in one of two ways. Some denied that Christ had an earthly body. He thought he was sort of this corporeal spirit that floated around. Like, if Jesus was walking on the beach, he wouldn't leave footprints. I mean, that's what they thought. That's what they believed, that Jesus was kind of just spirit and looked like it, in contradiction to what the Gospels clearly claim. But then there was another type of heresy where they said, well, okay, if Jesus became flesh and blood, then he therefore couldn't have been divine. He couldn't have been God. He couldn't have been spirit because that doesn't work with this Greek philosophy. That was what was known as Corinthian Gnosticism. Not Corinthian, Corinthian. It's a different term. And you're like, what difference does that make, Brad? I don't see a lot of Gnostics running around in the world. Oh, don't we? There's people all over in the world that are denying one of these realities. They are spiritualizing Christ's incarnation and saying he didn't actually physically come, he didn't actually physically raise, he didn't actually physically return to heaven. Or maybe more common, maybe you may be more familiar with, is the form of Gnosticism that, divines that, or that denies that Christ was fully divine. The comic belief in the Mormon church. Those that are the Latter-day Saints will say, we are Christians alongside with you. And I say, you don't believe in the same Jesus. We believe that Jesus was fully divine, that which was from the beginning. It's Gnosticism, alive and well in our culture today. 
But what impact does that have on what we do? What impact does that have on what we believe or how we engage? Well, it's important to note that understanding Christ rightly is critical for protecting the atonement. We believe that Christ died paying the penalty for our sins in our place, and God put his wrath on Christ and put his righteousness, put Jesus' righteousness on us, and that's the foundation of our salvation. But if Christ wasn't fully God and fully man, how could he have possibly done that? As one man, you may be able to die for another man, but you can't die for everyone. So this becomes a crux in our understanding of the atonement, and therefore it becomes a crux in our understanding of how to share the gospel. Who was Jesus is the most critical question that many unbelievers are not sure what to do with. If he was just a man, he can't save anyone. And if he never came down and he wasn't incorporate, if he wasn't incarnate, he couldn't save us either. We must believe in and faithfully proclaim Christ as both fully God and truly man. It's the bedrock of our faith. And so that's where John begins. But John's message doesn't stop there. He says the implications of this get even better because Christ, this life in 1 John 1 through 4, also provides incredible blessings to the believer. And here we see the benefits of eternal life. We can tell that John is drawing implications, that he's about to draw out some important notes from his theology because he uses in verses 3 and 4 the term so that twice. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John draws three incredible benefits from Christ as this eternal life, this word of life. The first is he speaks to the blessing of divine relationship. Did did you see that in verse 3? He says, And indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John is claiming that because of Jesus Christ, the believer has genuine relationship with God. That is an incredible claim. Don't let that be lost on you because you've heard it said again and again and again. That is a monumental claim. He is, again, hearkening back to Genesis. He's reminiscent of this uninterrupted fellowship with God that we saw at the initial creation. Do you recall Genesis chapter 3, verse 8? It speaks of God walking in the garden looking for Adam and Eve. And because of their sin, they're hiding from him. That fellowship has been broken, but that desire for relationship with mankind that God created us for is still there. And he's saying that is possible through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, John is saying we can truly, authentically, genuinely know God. That would have been a great moment for an amen. Think about that. I love the way J.I. Packer puts it. He says, communion between God and man is the end to which both creation and redemption are the means. It is the goal to which both theology and preaching must ever point. It is the essence of true religion. It is indeed the definition of Christianity that sinners can have fellowship with a sinless God is astonishing that God made his son who had no sin to be sin for us so that we can be reconciled to God is more amazing still. We should be amazed at this reality 
that because of what Christ has done, we can have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. But the blessing doesn't stop there, because the believer can also experience the true blessing of human fellowship. Look back at verse 3. John writes this, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. He speaks to this idea of fellowship. We talked about that a few weeks ago in our introduction to the series. This idea of this Christ-centered participation and relationship with one another. This genuine bond that all believers share because we believe in the same things. And it's funny because he's reminiscing again, I think, back to Genesis chapter 2. The idea of this restored intimacy of relationship. In Genesis 2 verse 25, we read about Adam and Eve both being naked and unashamed. And while that was physically true, there's also a relational aspect to that. There was no shame, there was no guilt, there was no hiding anything. They could be authentically speaking to one another, talking to one another, who they were. We don't feel that anymore, do we? Here this morning, I would wager, every single one of us feels as though we have to hide something about who we are in order to speak with other people here in the church, do we not? We feel the shame and the guilt of our sin. We feel the realities of the fact that we don't get along with everyone and we don't speak to everyone and we don't know how to behave in every situation. There's this insecurity that comes from the fall when Adam and Eve sinned against, each other, or sinned against God and their relationship with each other was broken. But John is making the case here in John chapter 1, verse 3, that because of Christ, believers can truly, transparently, and unashamedly relate to one another again. Think about that. He's saying that because we have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, because Christ has cleansed us from all our sin, we can have genuine, authentic relationship with one another again. If that isn't countercultural, if that isn't world revolutionary, I don't know what is. The vast majority of us curate an image of who we want to be seen as somewhere. It's either on social media or it's out in the public. And we craft it and we curate it and we go, this is how I want to look and this is how I want to be seen and this is how I want to sound and I have to protect this in case anyone would find out who I really am. And John here in 1 John says, you don't have to do that. Because Christ has made fellowship with one another possible. So we're talking about this blessing of divine relationship, this blessing of fellowship with one another there's one final benefit that John is also seeking. And it's something which at first glance seems a little bit self-serving. Look at verse 4. He says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. It's like, well, thanks, John. Kind of selfish of you, isn't it? Well, not exactly. John's reason for writing here is complete experiential joy for the believer. Now, some manuscripts have your joy. Some manuscripts have our joy, and your Bible may translate it one way or the other, but I don't know that it really much matters, because if he's saying our joy, he means our collective joy. If he's saying your joy, I want you to experience that joy. Either way, his goal is complete joy for the believer. And if you think about it, this sort of joy really makes sense, does it not? In light of what he has just laid out, in light of who Christ is, And what he has done for us to restore relationship with the Father and give us the opportunity for fellowship is anything other than joy, rational. Embracing the gospel should produce experiential relationship with God. 
It should produce an experiential fellowship with one another, and the result of that ought to be unbridled joy. But unless you experience that joy, you don't know what people are talking about, do you? It's like if I were to say, there's this hamburger up here at Honest Dave's, which is really, really good. Like, well, Brad, that sounds great. And I started explaining it to you. You're like, that's exactly what I like on a hamburger, which I realize for some of you is fairly unlikely at Honest Dave's because you're a traditionalist. Okay? I like the really weird ones. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I really like to try whatever they're rotating through. Anyway, the point is, (laughs) I tell you all, this hamburger that they've just started at Honest Dave's is phenomenal, and it has this, and it has this, and it has this, and your mouth starts to water, right? But if you never walk up there and buy the hamburger for yourself and take a bite for yourself, you're never going to know what it actually tastes like. So you can kind of say, well, that's kind of a neat deal, but you're not going to experience the sort of joy you would if you go up there and buy the hamburger. John says, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Unless you know what it is to have a relationship with the Father, unless you know what it is to have fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ, this joy is simply theoretical. You don't experience it. It's something other people have. So ask yourself, in my Christian walk, am I experiencing these three things? Am I experiencing genuine relationship with God? Do I know what it means to walk with God? to talk to God, to speak with Him, to read His Word and hear what He has to say to me, to know Him. Is that a reality for you? Or is that something other people talk about? Is that something you don't really understand, don't really know, don't really believe? There are some of us that have settled for just simply thinking that if we're here, that's good enough. And I'm going to argue again and again for the need to be present with the gathered church But it begins, fellowship starts with a genuine relationship with God. And some of you sitting here this morning as we walk through the book of 1 John are going to come face to face with the fact that maybe you don't actually know him. As we walk through the challenges of this book, you're going to see, I don't know that that is true of me. And I would challenge you to encourage you to not bail out at that moment, but stick to see what a relationship with God is all about. For others, the question is, do I actually experience authentic relationship with other believers? Or is it something I speak about as a hypothetical, but when it comes to actual real people and knowing them, I'm not willing to be that transparent. I'm not willing to be honest. I'm not willing to confess sin. I'm not willing to tell people what's really going on in the inside. And we keep people at an arm's distance, and they never have the opportunity to share true fellowship with us. And we may say it is for any number of reasons. We're too busy for it. The church isn't very good at it. The list goes on and on. But what John claims here is that this sort of fellowship is true and is present between any believers. That means it's possible at any church. It's possible for anyone if it's shared with other believers that have genuine faith in Christ. And then lastly, are you experiencing this sort of complete joy in God's goodness? When you think of what Christ has done for you, when you think of the fact that you now have a relationship with the Father and you now have brothers and sisters in Christ, are you overwhelmed by this? As you meditate on these realities, are you experiencing a genuine joy? Now, I'm not talking about everything is happy-go-lucky in your life. 
I mean, John ends up exiled on the island of Patmos. Probably his life wasn't a lot of happiness toward the end of it. But is there an abiding joy because of what Christ has done and because you're not living for today, but you're living for eternity? That's missing. If there is no growing sense of joy as we walk through this book of 1 John together, either I'm doing something wrong or you're doing something wrong. There should be an incredible joy that's produced when we look at these realities in the gospel. And all of these realities should grow and should expand as we study the remainder of this book, as we look at Fellowship 101 in our time together. But they are not actually the only reason that John sets out to write the book. While these things are foundational to the beginning of the book, ultimately John wants, lastly, his readers to have an assurance of eternal life. To have an assurance of eternal life. Throughout the book, John states a number of purposes for writing this letter of 1 John. And each of them is highlighted by the preface. Either he will say, we are writing, or I am writing. And he leads into why he is writing. We've already seen the first of these in verse 4 of chapter 1, right? And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. His first reason for writing this letter is to provide complete joy. But there's a number more as we continue on. In chapter 2, verse 1, we see the secondary reason. He says, I am writing to prevent sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. One of the products of this study ought to be joy. One of the products of this study ought to be the mortification of sin. We ought to be putting sin to death and battling sin through our study of 1 John. In chapter 2, verse 7, he says, I am writing to give a new commandment. Now, this is interesting. Look at verse 7. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment. Hold on. But an old commandment that you had from the beginning, the old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. We're going to study what that means and why he says that and flips back and forth when we get to that text here in a couple of weeks. He's writing to give this new commandment. He's also writing to encourage faithfulness. In chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, you see him address a number of audiences. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. He's writing to encourage the faithfulness of this church. He also writes to affirm truth. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. He writes to affirm the truthfulness of what he is saying. And then the flip side of that, down in verse 26, he says, I write these things to you that those who are, or about those who are trying to deceive you. So he writes to affirm the truth, and he writes to prevent deception. Though one of the fascinating things about the book of 1 John is commentators actually argue about whether or not he's actually writing to the Gnostics. And the reason is because he focuses so much on the truth, he doesn't actually even address the issue that he's addressing. He doesn't speak to the theology of the Gnostics, he just pounds on the truth of God. It's an interesting note, study it more as we move on. But ultimately, I think John's pastoral heart is revealed most fully at the end of the book in chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13, he gives his seventh and final reason for writing the book. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, 
that you may know that you have eternal life. The culmination at the end of his book is he's winding down to a conclusion. He says, I am writing to give you assurance of your faith. He wants the believer to know that they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in order to get to that point, John doesn't pull any punches. He gives a number of things, a number of evaluation tools to these believers. He gives some of them reasons to be assured of their salvation, to know that they are walking with God and they have genuinely repented. And to others, he gives reasons for them to doubt their salvation. Now, I recognize that in our easy believism culture, the thought of preaching something that would cause someone to doubt whether or not they are saved is a social taboo. You don't go there. If someone made a vague comment to Jesus at one point, they must be a believer. That's not how John deals with the subject. He does not advocate a works-based righteousness. Don't go there. But he says, if you are saved, there are certain things that you should see in your life. There are certain things that other believers should see in your life. And so he writes this book to help some of them have assurance and to cause some of them to question whether they're genuinely repentant. In essence, what John is trying to do is he wants the line between the church and the world to be abundantly clear. He wants to make it very clear who is of the world and who is of Christ. And he says, let me give you some evidences. Let me apply these questions. Let me have you look at your own life and ask if these things are true of you. Not because you can work yourself into salvation, but because if you have genuinely placed your faith in Christ, there will be evidence in the way you live. And we're going to come back again and again to those things as we walk through the book. And that is John's primary reason for writing, to give an assurance of eternal life to the people he's writing to. He is seeking to distinguish, as we walk through the book, we'll see, between walking in darkness and walking in the light. Between loving obedience to Christ and blatant rejection of Christ. Between love for brothers and sisters and love for the world. Between denial of Christ and confession of Christ. Between righteousness and lawlessness. Between professing the Spirit and following false spirits. Between listening to God and ignoring God. Abiding in love and anxious fear. Believing in the Son and rejecting the Son. Having life and not having life. These are the questions John forces us to ask as we walk through the book of 1 John. And I do not promise that it will be an easy ride for any of us. But if you hang in there, I do promise that it will be encouraging. And so to accomplish these purposes, John starts off his book by describing both the source of our eternal life and the benefits of eternal life. By speaking to the glories of Christ, Christ who was fully God, fully man, and must be proclaimed by his people. And these incredible benefits of having a relationship with God and having restored fellowship with one another, and then having complete joy as a result of it. And ultimately, his goal throughout all of it is to give assurance of salvation to the believer. To help us know that we have eternal life. And that's why we're studying the book of 1 John. We're going to study what fellowship with God, what fellowship with other believers looks like, 
because both are necessary for the believer's confidence in their salvation. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are all-powerful, that you are all-knowing, that you are eternal, that before the foundations of the world, you knew that you had a plan to send your Son to redeem a people. Lord, I pray for those that are here that know you this morning, that you would encourage their hearts, that you give assurance, to help remind them of the truths of the gospel, Lord, that you would conform us to the image of Christ, that you would help us to be a church that is faithful not only to the proclamation of the gospel, but to living its implications out in our lives. Lord, if there's anyone here that does not know you this morning, that either struggles with the realities of Christ or the claims of Christianity, I pray that you would help them to see who Christ is, what he's done for them. Lord, help us to be a church that is faithful. Lord, guide and direct as we study 1 John together. In Jesus' name, amen.